Join the conversation at everydaynovelist.com. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find the host at J.D. Sawyer on Minds.com, or hit him up at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you. Welcome to The Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 947. Today we hear from Ed. Who asks? Well, it looks like the pandemic is turning endemic. That creates an interesting question about several forms of fiction. I'm sure you can riff on the impact on science fiction set in future timelines without much thought. So, (laughs) In fact, I've written a couple of books that are predicated on this thing already. I haven't released them yet, but... So, I'm going to ask a different question. What will the impact of COVID be on contemporary fiction? I'm thinking of romance and mystery, but... This could apply to thrillers, paranormal fantasy, and many other genres that are nominally set in the present day. Often the exact time frame is a bit fuzzy, but can be figured out from the technology and other markers in the story. The point is often to convey a world that is now. Well, now is no longer like it was in 2019. So, if a writer is setting a book in the present, do they pretend COVID doesn't exist? Set it a few years ago? Write COVID into the story itself? And what are readers, now and in the future, going to want? Do they want escapism, where their fiction pretends that the pandemic isn't happening? Or will they look back in ten years and go, Well, that book is crap. It doesn't include anything about masks. (laughs) If COVID had been a one-year wonder, we could collectively ignore it in fiction. But it's clear that we've got years, if ever, before it'll be safely in the rearview mirror. So, what does this do to contemporary fiction? Let's see, do we want to give them the artistic answer or the uh, really scary answer? Or should we hit both? Go for both, because I I have no idea what you're implying with both of those scenarios. So the answer as far as artistic concerns go, at least the answer that I've got, which, you know, as always, take it with a few dozen salt licks or a dead sea, depending on how credible you find me not to be, is that until there's a actual new normal, everyone's going to ignore it. People people are writing and reading because they don't want to deal with the fact that they're shut up in their houses and whatnot. So, to that extent, in the immediate near future, there's going to be a niche market for COVID fiction, but it will probably be a passing fad. You're correct that it's going to turn endemic. There's There was never, at the moment this thing hit R1.2 in China, which was February of 2020, there is no containing this. No vaccine, no nothing until it burns through. The vaccines help. The therapeutics that have been come up with really help save lives. But this thing is uh, its already in the rat population in Africa. It's showing up in the cat population in the U.S. It is not going anywhere. It's with us forever. The only question is, how quickly are we going to adapt to it enough that it becomes the common cold. you got to remember, the common cold that we've got now is the result of a coronavirus pandemic in the late 19th century that was super deadly. Not as deadly as the Spanish flu, but very, very deadly. And then within a generation, it was just the common cold. 
So this kind of thing happens. Um, once... Okay. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to approach this, because this is actually a much more sophisticated question than it sounds like on the surface. And I think Ed knows that, uh, because Ed's that kind of guy. <laughs> but... Um, the problem isn't the disease. The problem is that we have not had a disease in 50 years. And this disease comes at a point where we don't remember how we don't remember disease being a real thing and the entire global system at every level in every place is balanced on a point of hyperfragility and ready to tip over. We lost the cultural software to deal with this. The way that a previous generation would have dealt with this is people would have spontaneously kept their distance, done their best to minimize transmission, and they would have gotten on with life. Now, of course, previous generations that went through this also weren't spending ungodly amounts of time clustered into small buildings. Most people spent most of the time outside. This virus wouldn't have gotten its boots on 70 years ago, because, mm. except in the city cores, because the, situa the um, ground conditions for hyperspreading didn't exist in most places it 70 likely, years ago. It likely would have hit uh, factory workers hard. It would have hit factory workers not really very hard. much else. And in the really posh... Um, areas and offices that had air conditioning, they would have been hit really hard. Mm. And then, of course, as always, in the overcrowded ghetto conditions, yeah. you would have gotten it. But at that time, the percentage of the population who were in those situations was what about thirty percent? So it would have been it would have been bad, but it would have been confined. Now we've got upwards of 80% in these hyper-novel conditions that are tailor-made for the spread of this stupid thing. And and really tailor-made for the spread of anything. anything right. I, I mean, even before COVID was a thing, I worked in an office and people in our office were, anytime the flu came around, it, it was like everybody's on tenterhooks because the airflow situation is it's so bad is so bad and it, it just spreads from on one half of the building to another right. and, it, well, and this is why you've seen the alternating uh, waves in the north and the south um the last winter was really really bad in the north but the south was doing great and now the northern states are doing pretty good but the south is getting hammered and everyone's trying to make political hay out of it but there's a basic, basic reason. Summer is the South's winter. It's when, they it's when they're all clustered inside because the weather is too inhospitable to spend the time outside, which is extra um, awful with this disease because not only does it make it super spreadable, and when you're isolated in um, those super spreadable areas, the vaccine's only going to protect you so much because the dosage of virus load that you get can overwhelm that vaccine, as we're seeing happen in Israel right now. But uh, not only do you get that going on, but people in the time of year where they're most likely to get the biggest load of vitamin D, which is one great prophylaxis against the disease, they're inside, mm -hmm. not getting the vitamin D from the sun because it's too hot and humid. So this winter you're going to see that 
pendulum swing back again. And uh, mm-hmm. if there's another wave and this thing hasn't majorly domesticated itself by that time, it's going to hit the northern states. And the southern states are going to suddenly be okay. And then the southern states will be all self-righteous about the northerners who are ragging on them this time. And the northerners will be all defensive and huffy, just like they were last winter. And it's just get, and like the southerners are now. And it's just going to flip back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really, really ugly and irritating. But... That inability to deal with just the basic... No, let me rephrase, because the the problem here is actually abstraction. Mm -hmm. We live in a world that is hyper-abstracted. None of us have dealt with diseases firsthand, or at least very few of us have dealt with real communicable disease firsthand. Unless we grew up during some kind of minor outbreak of something awful, or we've done a lot of international travel or were old enough to have been deliberately infected with chickenpox because there wasn't a vaccine then. Mm-hmm. Other than stuff like that and maybe little things like strep throat, none of us have ever dealt with a real communicable disease. Not in the last 50, 60 years. The Hong Kong flu was the last one, and it was worse than coronavirus as far as death totals go, but not as far as morbidities go. Morbidities are awful for coronavirus. So these things don't come around but once or twice a century. And the way that we have organized life between pretty decent medical care, pretty decent sanitation, pretty uh, decent freedom of movement, and pretty decent nutrition means that communicable disease in North America and in the developed West has just gone through the floor. So we've lost the cultural software about how to deal with it. But that's okay, because we've got experts. We have abstracted and subcontracted our cultural ability to deal with disease to a class of experts. And that, and the reason that we made that shift, and we've made that shift in every area of life over the last uh, 70, 80 years, the reason that we made that shift was because of the polio vaccine. It was so amazingly effective that it was obvious that the public health establishment knew its shit. And the accomplishments of the polio vaccine and the, um, and the work to end river blindness and in the third world and a bunch of other stuff like that really, really upped the credibility of the public health establishment. Took a big hit during the AIDS crisis, and I'm not going to mention who led the uh, response that created such a problem there, uh, because that's going to open a political can of worms and I don't really want to get into that on this show but the um, it took a bit of a hit with the AIDS crisis but by the end of the 80s beginning of the 90s it had sort of recovered its sheen and gloss and gotten its messaging better and gotten a little better with its science but the establishment is now four generations or at least two generations out from any real major pandemic and four generations out from any hyper communicable pandemic Mm -hmm. and the institutional memory just ain't there. The people who run the show, some of them are decent scientists, but the ones that get selected for in the bureaucracy, if they're decent scientists, they're not general thinkers, and if they're good bureaucrats, they're very unlikely to be decent scientists. You don't have the co-location of expertise in the three areas that you need for an expert class to make it work. I'm going into depth on this because this bears really directly on your question about what effect this is going to have on fiction. Because 
what has happened first with the financial crisis and then with COVID and with a bunch of stuff in between that I'm not going to mention because each one of them is tied to one or another political party and everyone's going to have an opinion about which one of them was a legitimate crisis or not. But uh, the financial crisis and COVID, even though people attempt to politicize them, basically everyone kind of knows that the response across the whole uh, expert class was shit. Um, partly because you can see it wasn't didn't just happen in this country. It mm-hmm. happened in all the countries. Mm-hmm. The crisis of competence in leadership, in the institutions, in every institution of every developed country on this planet is this profound. And the public now knows it. And that means that the next time there's anything like a crisis, you're going to get armed revolution in the streets. We've already had a little taste of that. And it's going to be global, and it's going to cause a world war. There has literally never been a time in history when there's been the confluence of crisis competence and debt factors and demographic factors that we're seeing now that has not resulted in global warfare. It hasn't always been a world war, but it has always been war across the world because these things tend to move together in an interconnected world, even in a loosely interconnected world. So going forward, fiction that looks back may or may not peg COVID as the last of the of the big dominoes to fall before everything went crazy, but there's a good chance some of it will. And so it depends on what you want to achieve with your books. Part of the problem is that right now we don't know what dominoes are going to fall and in what order. I'm willing to place bets on what dominoes are going to fall, but I've got no idea what order they're going to fall in. If you're interested in my thoughts on that, I'm doling them out at my substack, which we'll link to in the show notes. But... Because we don't know that, that change in the way fiction is written is still a little ways off. Mm-hmm. But the fact that right now people are masking up and there's a lot of isolation and all the cultural problems that come out of that and the social distancing and the economic turbulence and the supply chain interruptions, all of that stuff does make for great drama fodder. Yeah. Um those things may turn out to be hyper-transitory, but if you write it right, it probably won't matter. Or they may turn out to be the new normal for quite a while, in which case uh, your references to it will stay relevant. But, on the other hand, if you want to get away from it all while you're writing your book, don't think, at least at this point, that you're going to get much pushback from the audience who is happy to return to the before time, what's going to, rem- what's going to very quickly be remembered as the golden years of 2016 to 2019. Not because of who was in the White House, but because that's going to be the last time anyone can remember the global empire functioning. And that's, that's, going, to be terrifying the, that's going to be the reality for the rest of our lives. The global order is done. It's over. It ended in 2020. If I can um, offer an alternative viewpoint on this. (laughs) um, I said it was going to get dark. Sorry. I I think you can approach this, or at least I would approach it in one of two ways. 
you can either really engage with what the world might look like in the coming years, or you can kind of look at it like we have a one-week nationwide memory for anything that is going on, and we panic about the next thing next week. So Mm, There's that. Once this is over, nobody's going to care. So it's either going to change everything, or everything's going to go back to so such normal that we won't even talk about it. There's a third possibility. Mm-hmm. It's going to change everything so much that we don't talk about this part of it. Mm. Mm. Well, that's interesting. So anyway, um, I've talked around the whole subject, and I don't know if we've given you an answer that you like, but... Um, Hopefully it helps you figure out uh, for the projects you're working on. It's going to be interesting. Switch to historical fiction yeah, for right. a couple of Switch weeks. Switch to <laughs> historical fiction for a couple of weeks. Uh, when I, Death Flight to Mars, which I wrote for Nano last year, mm-hmm. is predicated. Uh, one of the basic premises is that the U.S., though it doesn't stop existing officially, gets hyper-balkanized and uh, between local military fiefdoms for a brief time in the 2030s as a result of this crisis. Um, <laughs> right. So I've already had fun with this, but um, your mileage may vary. Right. But, uh, yeah, roll with it. There's, there's big shit going on, and it's gonna get interesting. <laughs> also, take some time to kiss your children, because... Uh, that's what's really important in times like Absolutely. Or your pets. Or your pets. Or support your local podcaster. We have a <laughs> Kickstarter. How is that for a segue? I'm learning, right? <laughs> we have a Kickstarter coming up. The Secrets of the Heinlein Juvenile is kickstarting. And uh, ironically, many of the Heinlein Juveniles dealt with these kinds of turnings in history. So they're a good place to go to look for comfort and stimulation that isn't so close to home that it makes you want to put it down because it's like watching the news. The Secrets of the Heinlein Juvenile, it's written for you guys, it's written for homeschoolers, it's written for teachers, it's written for literary scholars. It's about one of the foundational forms of literature that the entire science fiction genre rests on that nobody up to this point in history has taken apart to see how they work. I've done it, that's what the book's about, and I hope you'll support me and spread the word and uh, help me defray the publishing costs and uh, make a big splash so that more people will read the book because I love these books and you'll love this book. Absolutely. So thank you very, very much and we'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation, submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat, or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.